Welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. Fire up your jean drives and hop in your spacesuits because today we are blasting off into the 1997 artsy sci-fi box office flop turned cult classic, Gattaca. Joining us today are Associate Professor of Philosophy at the College of William and Mary, Chris Fryman. Hi, thanks for having me. And the Richard L. Morrill Chair in Ethics and Democratic Values at the University of Richmond, Jess Flanagan. Hi. So given that Gattaca is set in the not-too-distant future and was released in 1997, does anyone think we're close to making Gattaca a reality? And would that be a good or bad thing? I don't know how close we are. I don't know if we're as far away as we might think. Uh, I don't know. I could see it happening in my lifetime, perhaps. Uh, and I guess I would say, you know, depending on how genetic enhancement is actually used, I think it could be a good thing on the whole to make people uh, healthier and happier. I think that the movie raises some important moral questions about enhancement, but I don't think it's all that different from medical treatments that we use to do things like treat polio, that sort of thing. And I, I do have to say, I didn't realize this was a box office flop. That kind of makes me sad, too, because I really like this movie. Uh, yeah, actually, this movie did not do very well at the box office. It, I believe it had a budget of something around $36 million, and it only made throughout its whole theatrical run, I think just a little over $12 million. So it only really made back a third of its budget wow. uh, production-wise. So not not very good investment-wise for a movie. Uh, but it's since gained a, a cult following for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, if the question was about like just the technology, I think the barrier to, the, to making this a reality isn't like the gene editing technology. If anything, it seems like our gene editing technology is like, more advanced than it was in the movie because it looked like in the movie they were doing pre-implantation genetic selection, but now we have CRISPR. So you can like actually like affect the genomes of a future person directly without doing just the screening where it looked like before they were doing screening. But the barrier is just the knowledge about how genes will translate to these different types of traits. And so they were assuming that they like understood how genetic information could translate to a bunch of behavioral traits, like ADHD and stuff. And we just don't have a good enough understanding of like how the human genome works to know if that's feasible or if that's even how genes would work. Um, plus there's like epigenetic factors that would matter. So like the science isn't quite there with just understanding how genes work, but the science is farther than there when it comes to like being able to modify the genes of future people. So like in the very first scene or within the first few minutes of the movie, we get a scene where two parents are meeting with what would be the equivalent of a like fertility doctor. And they are given a picture with um, cells, or I guess they're zygotes, right? And they're told, oh, like, do you have preference over boy or girl? And we already pre-screened for all of these different, um, I guess, different anom anomalies and or different traits that they could want their children to have. And the parents make this comment about like, oh, can't we leave some things up to chance? And I was interested, since both of you are parents, if you would want to choose some of those traits um, or if you would like to leave some of those 
uh, traits up to chance. Now, I'm ta- not talking about like any sicknesses or that kind of stuff, like serious uh, disabilities. I'm more talking about things they were talking about, like they talked about eye color and hair color. Um, and I was kind of curious what you guys would do in that situation. Yeah, I think this is an interesting question. I think it's nice to leave some things up to chance. So it's, you know, if you have one of these situations where it's, uh, what do they call it? It's like the, a Christmas gift exchange where you're paired with another person and you exchange oh, gifts. Like a white yeah. elephant. White Secret elephant. Santa. Okay. Secret yeah. Santa. But, but like sometimes that happens where you, you don't really know what the other person wants. And then so you just kind of like ask them directly what they want. You give them exactly what they want. And like, or they give you like an Amazon gift card or something like that. And there's no real surprise to it. That kind of takes right. some right. of the, the fun. Uh, out of the gift exchange, if you know exactly what you're going to get. And I, I think you could make an analogous argument with kids. Uh, it's probably good to leave some things up to chance. But like you said, I, I don't think you want to leave everything up to chance. So certainly things that are relevant to the child's uh, happiness or overall well-being, I think uh, you would might have good reason to tinker genetically. But anybody who's been a parent will know that like there's so much stuff that's already up to chance like that has nothing to do with any of this, that there's already a lot of like surprises and unexpected stuff. And some people are critical of like pre-implantation enhancement because they think that that is like a kind of like parental hyper agency. So like Michael Sandel teaches at Harvard. So like, no wonder that he thinks this because like Mm -hmm. he's surrounded by a bunch of people who maybe did have like hyper gentle parents (laughs) but like he worries that like if we had parents that were able to do this in addition to like you know 20 hours a week for travel soccer and SAT tutoring and stuff that it would make parents like less accepting of their children and that parenting should have what he calls like openness to the unbidden but you know good parenting should have openness to the unbidden whether or not your kids were selected or not like his objections to bad parenting not to genetic enhancement and there's another philosopher this guy julian salvescu and he he has this analogy the wheel of fortune analogy where he's like imagine that you had two boxes and uh they both you spill a spin a wheel of fortune and you could get some kind of payoff box a and b um but if you choose box b then you also have a one in chance one in six chance of like losing some money like losing a hundred dollars and otherwise that you are exactly the same like of course, you would choose box A because it still has a bunch of randomness involved, but it just doesn't have this additional chance of like some kind of um, thing that you would want to avoid. And so choosing genes for like disease states or something like that might be like this it, to the extent that you see having a disease state or having a even a undesirable non-disease state as like a kind of thing you want to avoid. Um, that's controversial because like there are disability rights advocates who are like, well, you shouldn't want to avoid those things. So we could talk about that later. But, um, the point is just like, there's already a ton of chance and like selecting against certain traits doesn't eliminate chance in parenting or amount to hyper agency or anything like that. And I think that's an interesting point that you bring up, Jess, because uh, specifically the disability rights issue, I think, would definitely view this film differently released today uh, than it was released in 1997, um, which is, oh, my gosh, over 20 years ago now. (laughs) That's odd to think about. (laughs) Um, But uh, specifically, I think with the character of Eugene and and the amount of agency that he has, um, and and I'm just kind of curious, 
if the film were to be released today, what do you see might be some of the differences in in the reactions to it that we might have now? Do you think people would take it in a different way? Um, do you think they would... Uh, d- is is there other technology that seems to be more on the the sort of on the forefront and is or is more far fetched than what is included in the movie? Yeah, I mean, I think like our judgments always have a kind of like status quo bias, and so like this really reflects like how people perceived the status quo of like 1997. But like now, things are so much further along that um, it would maybe be perceived as like more plausible today (laughs) because they're a little bit closer to that. Right. I imagine that back in 1997, this was seen more like fantasy based than people would view it today. Had it come out today, Uh, especially with uh, CRISPR wasn't around back in 1997. Um, And we've obviously had huge advances since then, just in the type of technology that we use. Um, But I think that kind of what Landry is getting at is the reaction would be more so like a techno panic than it was. I, I at least I would argue back in 1997 um, that this that somehow this Gattaca society would be like much worse, much worse off than the benefits it also gave us. Hypothetically, but. I'm not what I'm not one uh, to, to say much about film criticism, but it is an interesting thing about the aesthetics of this film that it is supposed to be very futuristic. But it, but it looks like it takes place in the 1950s. It's like it's right. 1950s, but with like electric cars and genetic enhancement somehow. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure what the significance of that. Right. A yeah. lot of retrofuturism. So maybe that's supposed to, uh, you know, key us into the plausibility of this happening at some point within our lifetime. Or, I mean, I was going to say, even in relation to perhaps sort of playing into the aesthetic of, I mean... When really did the eugenics movement die down? And that's a genuine question. I am not a historian based in that or, or understanding that at all. But I wonder if that's sort of a, a sort of aesthetic homage to a period where something like eugenics might be not quite looked down upon in the same manner as it is today um, and sort of attempting to draw parallels between that. But I also know that the writer-director of this movie, Andrew Nichol, um, has also used similar uh, aesthetic choices of retrofuturism in other movies that he's made, including a a similar movie that came out actually, I think, just a a handful of years ago called In Time, which stars Amanda Seyfried and and, and Justin Timberlake, um, (laughs) which is which has a great premise, I think, and but isn't a great movie in and of itself. And it's actually basically a complete remake of a short film from, I think, 1987 or something like that, that they don't credit. But basically where people are genetically engineered, once again, to not age past the age of 25. And at that point, they stop aging and there's basically a, a ticking time clock that everyone has. And the and time alive is basically used as a, a, a currency that people can exchange and use. And the wealthy uh, accumulate not only actual money, but but use the amount of time they have to, you know, accumulate power and basically become immortal. Whereas uh, the the people who are living in poverty die very young, um, which I think is sort of an interesting parallel compared to like the, the healthy people in the world of Gattaca um, are, you know, in this upper class system and, and 
probably statistically would live longer simply based on their genes, whereas the people who are considered invalids um, would not live as long because they have things that would be seen as uh, disabilities or deformities, etc. So that raises an interesting point about Gattaca, where you always have these sci-fi movies that seem really nice on the surface, but then there's like some horrible catch lurking in the background. It's like, oh, everybody's like super happy and they live forever, but like a supercomputer is going to torture them when they're 30 and like extract their organs for the sake of the youth. It's like, okay, but like Gattaca is not like that. It's just kind of like, you know, things are are in some sense like working as you would expect them to work and there's no horrific catch. But I, but I still think that um, it, it's meant to serve as a kind of critique of that technology. Well, also because the, the sort of caste system that you see, that, that they hint at, um, you don't see too much of the, the, the marked line between the two, the, the valids and the invalids. It's almost exclusively operating in the world of the supposedly genetically superior. Um, and, and you don't get very much of the people who are not a part of that class. You get the people who are rounded up outside uh, that the club in the, I guess it's like a, a concrete basketball uh, like uh, area that they're playing at. Or I think there's hints of some people that are at that sort of speakeasy like place that they visit together. And then there's Eugene who sits all alone at home. But I, it sort of leads me to the other idea I had, which is I wanted more Eugene, I wanted more of his his struggle and his decision of, of what it was like for Jude Law to uh, align himself with Ethan Hawke's character. And you get moments of that where he talks about he gets, uh, you know, 10 or 20 percent of the cut from the, the, the broker, Tony Shalhoub's character. Also, the cast for this movie, just fabulous, stunning. Yeah, bar none. Yeah. And produced by Danny DeVito. Uh, yeah. Did not yeah. realize that. that. <laughs> um. I, I just I would like to see more of both sides of the coin there. And I think that would have fleshed out the movie more for me. Well, this might seem like a like a really simple question, but what exactly is is Gattaca? So is it a private company? I don't think we have enough information. Maybe the movie doesn't purposely makes it a bit more nuanced what exactly Gattaca is. And I saw uh, Jess had written in her notes like is Gattaca like NASA? Because then is it? It, then there gets into all these interesting questions about like what your employer is and isn't entitled to um, because essentially the employer is taking all of your genetic information, um, which sounds terrible. Um, but I was just, there's, I don't know if anyone else saw that nuance, like in Gattaca being a private company or it being something that's like a government hybrid or yeah. government funded company and how that presents even yeah. more questions. <laughs> Yeah, I had this thought, like, watching it again, because maybe this is just because, like, political philosophy is, like, wrecked my brain when I was, when I watch <laughs> movies. But um, I was like, first of all, for the broker's contract, like, that would be prohibited now, I think, based on, like, the unconscionability doctrine, because it would be, like, a prohibited mm-hmm. contract where it's, like, you can't extract a percentage of somebody's lifetime earnings for some type of exchange. Like, I don't think that the courts would uphold that kind of contract. <laughs> And then he's like, well, yes, genetic discrimination is illegal, but like everybody does it. And then they're like citing insurance. But like if they're citing insurance, that might be because of like things like the Affordable Care Act, which like (laughs) kind of reinforce our employer mandated insurance system. So like you could decouple insurance, the provision of insurance from like where you go to daycare or where you work. 
and like they don't necessarily have to go together, but it sounds like there's like some kind of government regulation that has these types of insurance mandates and like um, maybe if it was a public daycare, they would have had sovereign immunity. So they could have taken him. I don't know. Um, yeah. Like if Gattaca is like NASA, then like, that also means that like, who are the villains say that Gattaca is like NASA, then the villains in the movie are like the police and like this, uh, state funded research organization. I mean, people kind of, I think the, the surface reading of it is like, oh, this is like a cautionary tale about like unregulated access to medical technology. But like the actual like second line reading of it might be like, this is a cautionary tale about like how people respond to um, introductions of like new genetic technology and that like people will use public institutions to respond to it in a really problematic way. The villain is politics or people. The villain's not like the technology itself. It's not the enhancement that's the villain. I uh, nominate Jeff to enact regulatory reform for the world of Gattaca. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think talking about this idea, we're going back a little bit about being able to enhance, uh, enhance your children and so that they can go and work at somewhere like Gattaca or they could go and the presumption the presumption is that they could go and they're going to live a better life if you enhance them is it so if you kind of extract from that is it morally is it morally permissible for parents not to enhance their children at that point because if everyone's enhancing their children and you're like working backwards if everyone's enhancing their children and then you don't enhance your children because you think like okay we're going to leave something up to chance um does that mean your child is like already starting further back than everyone else? And then do do you like not do your duty as a parent? <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty like, I kind of feel like the bar for parenting is like pretty, it doesn't require that you do the most um, because you've, you've provided the necessary conditions for your kid to have like the whole, a whole lifetime worth living. And so I don't think that parents have a duty to like maximize the expected welfare in their child's life. There are these cases in bioethics of people who select in favor of certain disabled traits. So they'll select in favor of deafness, for example. And I don't think that they do anything wrong to deliberately decide to have a child that's deaf. The thing that people do to deaf people that's wrong is that they uphold a discriminatory set of institutions that like require like an oralist culture or that like exclude deaf people from um, being able to participate in things by like not providing closed captioning and stuff. But like, mm-hmm. it's not wrong to create a child who's deaf. It's wrong to be mean to people who are deaf. Hmm. Right. <laughs> that's the thing that's wrong. Right. Jeff, do you mind if I follow up with a question as, as uh, somebody who's probably more sympathetic to welfare maximization than you are? <laughs> that's definitely true. <laughs> so, okay. so, so let's just, so, so let's table the discussion of which particular traits are welfare maximizing. Let's just assume that, that we know what they are. And okay. suppose you you have a choice. So you say, okay, uh, I can send my kids to one of two schools. They're identical in all respects, except the second school will increase their welfare relative to the first school. Doesn't it seem like you should send them to the second school? There's a difference between like what you like have most reason to do versus like what's permissible. But like, it's definitely permissible for you to send them to the less welfare maximizing school. So if you're like, yeah, but like the less happy school takes five minutes off my commute. It's not a big, but like, that's fine. Cause like, you know, your kid's going to have a life <laughs> worth living. Um, 
And I think that like one thing that makes people like stress out, even like just today about parenting and having more kids and stuff is that we do expect parents to just like do all that it takes and like hyper maximizing um, for their kids' well-being and stuff. But I think that, uh, you know, um, as long as they have lives that are worth living and that are good lives and, you know, their parents love them and stuff, you don't have to be a maximizer when it comes to parenting. And I don't think that, you know, Vincent's parents in the movie did wrong by him by creating him without enhancements. I think that the social institutions have excluded him from employment and also like, I don't, we should talk about how the economy works in this society, but like that, those are the people who did him wrong, not his parents that created him. His parents did him a favor. Like he should be grateful to his parents. Let me follow up though with a question then about Vincent. So suppose Vincent is born and they get that uh, readout that says his life expectancy is 30 years because he has a heart problem, but it's still presumably a life worth living. And suppose yeah. the doctor says, well, here's a very simple pill you can give uh, baby Vincent. Well, maybe you don't want to give a baby a pill, but like here's a very <laughs> simple injection you can give baby Vincent that will fix his heart problem and extend his life to 60 years. It seems to me like you at least have a defeasible obligation to do that if you're Vincent's parents, don't you? Um, I think they definitely have reasons to do it because you have moral reasons to like create more welfare if you can or more life, life expectancy if you can. Um, but I don't know that they're like required to do it or that they'd be blameworthy for not doing it. But that's a little bit different from like creating Vincent in the first place because like right. he right. didn't exist. Bef- so like benefiting an existing person is different than creating a new person to get a certain lo- group of benefits. Right. I agree. This makes me think, Jess, that you brought up specifically that the issues in dealing with people uh, like, for instance, people who are deaf um, uh Most of the issues deal with the way that people and institutions treat them, not in the inherent uh, status of of that person. Um, So are his parents more or less defensible because of what they then chose to do for – uh, for their second son Um, and and the – or – and not necessarily in the fact that they – you know, genetically enhanced him uh, b- prior to birth, but that they treated him differently? Uh, or was it just that they were trying to warn Ethan Hawke's character about how hard his going his place in the world was going to be? Like, like his dad said, like, the only way you're going to get in there is by cleaning the bathrooms or, or, or what he said. Is there, a, is there a line between those two that makes them more or less defensible, do you think? Yeah, I mean, in my view, like the thing that was not good parenting was like having this kind of um, approach to their children where they approach their children as like a bundle of traits rather than as people. You know, it's kind of like approaching their children instrumentally. Um, and I don't think that that's like a good way to treat anybody, much less your own children. Um, but creating the children as they did, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with either choice. This conversation kind of goes uh, well into how this movie like handles discrimination. Um, so I saw that Chris had uh, wrote something about uh, genoism and like wrongful dis- discrimination in terms of like, who is like held back from certain jobs just because now we have all these uh, en- enhanced people that should be better at jobs than others and necessarily won't necessarily give um, 
give the, even the chance to someone like Vincent. Um, now, do we think this is like wrongful discrimination? I think I saw that Chris wrote down an interesting analogy to the NFL, and I kind of wanted him to uh, kind of tease that out for us. Yeah, I know. I, I, I always think in terms of analogies to sports, Jess thinks about like regulatory reform. I think about uh, <laughs> the NFL. That's how my analogy yeah, so you know, you hear these these like crazy stories about um, college football players who are competing to be drafted into the NFL, and what sorts of things that NFL scouts uh, do to, to you know prior to selecting them. So you know, I think that this link that I posted is something about like the, like the, the measurement of like their knees and like somehow like the 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 width of your wrist predicts your ability to like put on muscle mass. I don't know, but but really kind of crazy stuff like that. So you might say, okay, um, is that a sort of a, a, a permissible uh, reason to select one football player over another? You say, like, the, their wrist size is, is quote-unquote better. Well, you might mm-hmm. say, uh, if it speaks to their ability to do the job better, uh, that's a permissible reason. Maybe it's not an all-things-considered reason, but it seems like it's permissible um, because it seems uh, what you might call occupationally relevant. It's relevant to the occupation. And so you could say, well, for certain things like, uh, I think maybe another example of this would be something like uh, being a pilot for the Air Force, or maybe just being a pilot in general, you have to, your, your vision has to be sufficiently good. And you say, okay, that, that strikes me as pretty plausible because that's occupationally relevant. And so I think you could make the case that uh, the, the sorts of traits that Gattaca was looking for are permissible bases for hiring. Now, maybe they missed something, uh, by excluding the grit of Vincent, kind of like, you know, Notre Dame and Rudy. I don't know if you've seen the movie Rudy, but maybe it's kind yeah. of like that. <laughs> but maybe it's not, maybe, you know, they're, they're missing something. I think that's like kind of part of the message of the movie, which is not everything that counts is going to be on that genetic profile that the machine spits out. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, interesting. it's interesting that you brought up this idea of like, what the movie means as a whole too. Cause like Vincent's whole character is built off this idea that like you can defy the odds, right? You can, you can disprove what the machine tells you um, in terms of like, there's that great scene when he's running on the treadmill and has like the other guys like heart monitor on. And he's like running back to the locker room after he's like completely out of breath, but tries to remain super cool and not show anyone that like, he's not who he says he is and other small scenes like that. But I think the whole point of of Vincent's character really is to show this idea of like defying the odds, fighting the establishment, maybe even. Um, and it kind of plays out in those um, like the swimming scenes with his brother that I was kind of hoping we could talk about, um, especially like from the first one, from the difference between the first one and the second one. I, I will say I'm old enough to have purchased the DVD of Gattaca when it came out. And the tagline <laughs> on the DVD was, there is no gene for the human spirit. Hmm. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, maybe, like, the swimming thing or, like, with the, oh, there's no gene for the human spirit. Like, that's, like, a nice thing to think. But I think Chris is right. Like, in America, so, like, take, like, the NBA, <laughs> 17% of American men who are between the ages of 20 and 40 who are over 7 feet tall are in the NBA. So like, you know, like of the people who are that tall for like, and like, we don't know what the genes are that lead to height. So like, I mean, we know kind of like, it's like, like, so Gattaca, like you wouldn't be able to genetically engineer a kid right now that was like over seven feet tall, 
But like, that's a huge advantage if you want to be good at basketball. Like, and there are exceptions. Like there are people who are like five, seven and they're like really good at basketball and stuff. Um, but you know, like being super tall is like a definite advantage <laughs> if you want to play in the NBA. Yeah. Um, and like, I don't know that it's like fair to be like, but like, if you just have enough grit and like human spirit, like you too can be in the NBA if you're five, seven. Cause like, probably not. No, you can't. <laughs> I don't know anything about sports, but like, I don't know. I assume that like all those tall people are in the NBA for a reason related to basketball. <laughs> but if you just never save anything for the swim back, Jess, then you can make it. You can do that's, it too. That's the, that's, that's the moral of the movie, right? Like, how am I, I? I was really wondering how I was supposed to read that at the end. Was it supposed to be like this triumph of the human spirit, like you said, that which there is apparently no gene for? Uh, or is there a sort of self-determination aspect that is sort of, you know, they want to play up and, and make be a sort of a, a theme of the movie that they want people to walk away with? But it's also like you you have to sacrifice everything in order to get that. So it's not like Ethan Hawke gets everything he wants in the end. He abandons the world that he's known. He doesn't get to stay with Uma Thurman, who is apparently someone that he has grown interested in just before leaving for Titan, uh, which I, not to, I don't understand why, because I don't get the Uma Thurman character in this movie at all. I don't think it's super compelling, their relationship. I would like more of the Jude Law stuff. I, <laughs> she's just kind of placed in there. And she doesn't really do much other than act as a love interest for him, and which is, I think, really squandering Uma Thurman's abilities. Um, I, I think it's they, they do not make efficient use of her, and I don't think the character is, is written well. But it moving back to Ethan Hawke's character, I, it, it seems to me like the, he has to sacrifice everything in order to self-determine himself to a certain degree. That movie is where he and Uma Thurman got together. And then subsequently Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman were married. Really? Yeah. Oh, this, this is the movie where it happened? This started? Yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> but then they got divorced wow. after like a bunch of infidelity rumors about Ethan Hawke. So maybe it's not like a happy story about the movie. <laughs> And then she made and then she made Kill Bill and yeah. it was all about that. <laughs> this goes to another uh, discussion that we had talked about which is the interpretation of the ending. And Chris and Jess, you guys both seem to have some different sort of interpretations. So I would like to sort of uh, discuss and, and sort of tease out what you guys how you both came to the conclusions. Um so at the end of the movie uh, Ethan Hawke's character has uh, spoiler alert. I, Twenty-three years this later, far, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, he has b uh, escaped the uh, investigation. That spoiler alert again. His brother <laughs> has been heading this whole time for the murder of the director of the program uh, that is uh, he has been selected for. That will take him on one of the dozen or so. Uh, uh, space expeditions to Titan. Um, and he now is, is he's passed the test. He is through the, through the door. You find out the doctor has known all along that he is not who he says he is. And uh, due to reasons like his son being not genetically enhanced and, uh, and uh, other things that go unspoken, he lets him through. Ethan Hawke gets on the plane, blasts off into space and we see the the stars come into view as Jude Law's character um, 
commit suicide. Um, and does he, is he in like a, is he cremate himself uh, in, I, uh, what was that chamber in his house? Was it a fireplace? Yeah, it was like where he like destroyed all of his own genetic material. Like he would like scrub Got off it. and then he'd like incinerate his genetic material to like. Oh, that's right. So that he could protect himself. I forget. Yes. Um, why did you, it, it, so if you could each explain how you came to interpret the ending the way you did and why. So I don't know that it's like 100%, but I took it that in the (laughs) ending, it's supposed to be ambiguous whether or not Ethan Hawke's character, Vincent, is going to die in space. Because it's cut in a way where it's like interspersed with Jude Law killing himself and there's like a parallel between them. And then there's that whole thing of like, I won't need the samples when I get back or like that's not necessary. And then like also... The stuff of like, I never saved anything for the way back. And so like he knows right. that his heart condition's overdue. He didn't save anything for the way back. Like, I think he's gonna die in space. And if that's the case, then that's like a really like kind of subversive thing to put in a movie that's like the top line interpretation of the movie is that it's a warning about genetic enhancement. But then like at right. the very end, it like sows these seeds of doubt where it's like, but wait a minute, like is that guy gonna die on Saturn? Like <laughs> the moon of Saturn? <laughs> If so, then like that seems like it would have been relevant to the mission and like this other this like other guy killed for the mission. Like it was a very important mission. And then like Ethan Hawk gets up there and like his heart doesn't work or something. And so I thought it was like it was like left ambiguous whether or not he dies in space because he's like not leaving anything for the way back. And then it makes you question the overt message of the movie. But maybe I'm like reading too much into it. So I love the end. I love the scene with the the doctor at the end. That's just, it, it makes me verklempt every time I watch it. I really do. And also with the, the, the thing with the, the Jude Law suicide. So it just occurred to me, so you're saying like, Ethan Hawke is like clipping his fingernails in an incinerator. And so if he like bumps the wrong button with his elbow while he's grooming himself in the movie, he create, like that's not like, yeah, they need better OSHA regulations or something. I think. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I, I sort of interpreted it as, as like pretty. So I, I confess, I've, I've watched this movie a bunch of times, and I never thought that uh, Vincent was going into space with the thinking that he would die there. So I think he, you know, he recognizes that that's a real possibility. Um, but I didn't. But I, I spoke with other people, and I think I'm uh, I'm in the minority opinion here. I think a lot of people think that he basically did say, "Look, I'm, I'm going up there," and like you said, Jeff, you know, he doesn't save anything for the swim back. And so he's not anticipating coming home from Titan. Uh, I think that's I think that's plausible, but I, I think it's ambiguous. And so there's the comment too, where he says to Jude Law, uh, after Jude Law does all the uh, you know packs the blood and urine for him for the next year, he goes, oh, that's not necessary. I always interpreted mm-hmm. that as just you know he's being common courtesy or something like that. I think it was, amb- but maybe I'm just a starry-eyed optimist. <laughs> well, I, I see what you mean, because I also interpreted it at the one point as his entire goal for so long was to get into space and, and to go to Titan. And maybe by the time he comes back and is no longer on there, he's accomplished all that he wants to. And at that point, whatever happens, happens. And he, he won't need that because he is sort of given up on uh, the... Uh, you know, the need for Jude Law's DNA, perhaps. And I think there's also, uh, there's something where uh, Vincent sort of suggests that he he's come to terms with the fact that he's, he will get found out or something like that at some point. Like, it mm-hmm. might, so it's probably, you know, I don't know what the plans are once they're up there, but it might be harder for him to 
deceive people uh, without the, you know, the help of everything he has at home too. Well, presumably they're not doing like a bunch of like genetic testing while in space. Cause like, why will they? Because like, they know that nobody's going to come in or like, you know, so. Um, they might hear them huff and puff though. I don't know. Yeah. That was like, come on, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. How awkward yeah. will that be? Like he's like on his way to the moon of Saturn and he's like having an asthma attack or something. And he's like, oh guys, while we're here, <laughs> I brought <laughs> crosswords along know. and also <laughs> I have something to tell you. <laughs> Well, kind of something we haven't touched on yet, but there's this there's this tension throughout the movie that um, I think the the movie has a larger message about as well is this idea of perfection. So it, the movie is suggesting that like the more perfect or the closer to perfection you can either make your child to grow up and live the longest life possible, or they can have this um, crazy IQ, perfect vision, all that kind of stuff is perfection leads to happiness or like perfection maximizes happiness. And I, I don't necessarily believe that, but I was wondering if anyone saw, I want anyone else saw that tension and kind of what the role perfection plays throughout the movie or like perceived perfection. Yeah. Well, it's definitely supposed to kind of play into that like idea that um, there it's a mistake to strive for perfection. And like, when Michael Sandel, that anti-genetic enhancement guy I was talking about earlier, when he made mm-hmm. his case against um, genetic enhancement of embryos, like pre-implantation enhancement, he um, he called it as an article in the Atlantic called "The Case Against Perfection." And then also, uh, Ethan Hawke's character says that like his brother suffered under the burden of perfection, and so there is this kind of like theme of like parent parents are like screwing up their kids by like trying to demand perfection because they think that that's like a return on their investment in like genetic enhancement or something. And so maybe like giving more of these possibilities, the thought is that that's just like corrupting to the parent child relationship. But then that's just two separate questions. Like one question is like, should we have things that make people, you know, have access to genetic technology and then how should we respond to it? And like the problem with perfectionism is about people's response to it. It's not a problem with the perfection, the genetic enhancement itself. Right. Right. Like the burden also, of perfection doesn't come from being genetically. Enhanced. <laughs> it comes from people treating you differently. Right. It's come from the response or even the expectations that some, that someone would then have of you, then have of you knowing that you're uh, genetically enhanced in some way or uh, some way, shape or form. I just thought it was interesting that perfection was just like woven or like our attitudes towards perfection were just kind of woven throughout the film um, in a way that I don't necessarily think they overtly talked about other than like his brother facing the pressures of being perfect and that kind of stuff. Um, But I just, I just thought that theme was, was more interesting. Part of it's like positional goods. Like there are some goods that like the value of the good depends on whether or not if you have more of it than somebody else and not just on like the raw value of it. So like education Mm -hmm. is plausibly like that. So it's kind of like an arms race. Um, Right. And I think when we talk about enhancement, we think a lot about those positional goods, things like getting a prestigious job or like a highly selective job, like being in Gattaca or something. Um, SAT prep classes. Like if nobody mm-hmm. took SAT prep classes, if nobody went to private schools, um, then in some ways, like it would like level the playing field in some sense. And so like whenever we think right. about like hyper parenting or like the quest for perfection, it's often these positional goods. But what we don't realize is that like health or education or work they're also 
they have non-positional values. So like, there's also like good things about, you know, a private school or, a, you know, a learning more education and stuff or having better health that don't, those good things that don't come from being better than other people, but they're just like good in themselves in like a non-positional way. But like, I think so people actually, get hung up on the egalitarian aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so, so that actually speaks to something that here's maybe the one thing I, I, I really didn't like about the movie. Um, so, so just to backtrack a little bit. Uh, so I think that um, maybe what's most uh, prominent about the movie is sort of the social dimensions of genetic enhancement. But I think also one way of interpreting its message is as a moral one, which is like, what, what should you focus on in life? Should you focus on, you know, your eye color, your height, et cetera, et cetera, or you, should you focus on some kind of moral purpose in the way that Vincent does. I think that's maybe almost like a stoic theme where you say, well, look, all this stuff that's in my genes can help in certain ways, but that's not really what's important. What's really important is kind of how I make use of what I'm given, how, how I play the hand I, I'm dealt. And it, it's interesting on the, on the competitive part, um, what really upsets uh, Eugene is that he came in second in yeah. the swimming competition. Right. And he thinks, well, should that, but like, what if you used your gifts to their utmost extent and you still came in second? Should you feel any shame in that? And I would say no. But then what really gets me is at the end, when Vincent and his brother have the confrontation in Gattaca and Vincent says, or, you know, you needed help swimming that one day. Uh, and then his brother says, do you want me to prove it to you that I could beat you now? And Vincent says, something like, I, no, I don't want to race again. It's forgotten. It should have ended there. But then he actually right. goes and tries to race his brother again to prove <laughs> that he's faster than his brother. And that always bothered me. He should have just said, no, it's for, like beating you is no longer what's important to me. My goal is, you know, being the best astronaut that I can be. But he still had to prove that he could beat his brother in a competition. I didn't like that. Yeah, I didn't yeah. read Vincent as being a non-positional person throughout, though. Like, oh, I just want to like, I thought that he wanted to like, also get into this selective program and like do this thing. I didn't think it was just about like the purely non-positional value of being in a rocket. But do you think he wanted to get into the program to, to be at the top of the food chain? I always interpret it as, you, you know, because in the beginning, he's like looking up at the stars and he's admiring space and all this stuff. I always took that to be his primary motivation. Yeah. Like he just yeah. wanted to go out in the stars. Yeah, like I that do was think his that the, dream. Yeah, the Eugene narrative goes in the opposite direction. Like Eugene comes to terms with it. Like he comes to terms with the non-positionality at the end of his life. Cause he like puts the metal on and then he's like, Oh, right. like that was like, there was a kind of non-positional value to like what my life was about. Always. And he also suggests that what gives his life meaning at the end is the fact in the end is the fact that he was able to kind of share uh, the yeah. purpose. Oh, that's true. Like you lent me your dream. Yeah. That whole part. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I also thought um, what was, a bit more interesting and we haven't talked talked about him in length but mo uh, many of us noted this idea that like once uh Eugene was no longer or um once Eugene was no longer able to like use his enhanced body because he got in an accident um which was also due to sports um yeah. but side note um he kind of just like not he gives up in a sense. And he was like, okay, well, I'm going to sell my genetic material essentially uh, so that someone else can get better use of it or get better use of my identity. Um, and then he like becomes an alcoholic and like, uh, like a chain smoker, which is interesting because 
I just think it's like at tension that he just basically gave up because he got in this accident. Um, but I don't know. What did you guys think of that? I know we all noticed like, why is he now like gone full swing? Well, then Ethan Hawke, Ethan Hawke was also yeah. chain smoking <laughs> at times. Like he's and about he to go to space yeah. and he's, yeah. And I'm like, dude, and it was, and they test for all these different things, but it's, I mean, it's literally like, He's he's one of those people that's like, well, I passed my drug test. Time to go smoke a bunch of cigarettes. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I don't understand the rationale that went on where he was like, all right, it's done. It's out of the way. I'm an astronaut and I'm never going to get tested ever again. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's because it looks cool. Remember that scene where he like blows the smoke into the into the wine glass? Right. <laughs> it's true. If the 90s media taught us anything, it's that smoking looks cool. <laughs> they would not be vaping. <laughs> right. I do think that, like, what's going on with that is that, like, it's supposed to play into this idea that, like, people who are enhanced, like, focusing on genetic enhancements prompts a kind of instrumental orientation towards somebody mm-hmm. where you see them as, like, a bundle of useful traits. And then when he right. no longer saw himself as a bundle of useful traits, he just focused on things that were non-instrumentally valuable. So just like pleasure seeking. So like getting drunk, being with sex workers, chain smoking, like those are things that are like not going to like advance his position in any way, but we're just like pleasurable for him. And so he kind of like Mm -hmm. took a non-instrumental view of his life in that way. Um, Once he could no longer like fulfill what he viewed as like the instrumental value of his genetic lot. Right. So it makes sense for him. I don't know why Vincent's smoking. I thought that too. I was like, you're about to go in space and you have a heart condition. Maybe he's like off the vodka. Well, he's under a lot of pressure. He's going to blow off some steam. He's got to relax. Right. Right. (laughs) Can we talk about the economy and like what's going on in the economy of the society? Sure. Also, my like, okay, so my biggest question was like, how many space missions is Gattaca running? Because like, the whole like what was it like twelve rockets yeah. or something like a mo- twelve a month, <laughs> a month or something yeah, right oh, a, oh no a day, a day. Yeah. yeah and I was like trying to think in my head I was like man this is like millions upon billions of dollars they're just like shooting this up is, into hey, space <laughs> remember it's a not too distant future this is space force right yeah. this is what's gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> right you're right um and then like the other thing that I was thinking about throughout the movie is that. If we got to a point in Gattaca it, that we were living in a world with Gattaca um, and people were genetically enhancing their children, I imagine that it at least would start off as something that was not accessible uh, to lower or middle class families. It would only be something that was accessible to people that would pay for the purpose of this, um, which is interesting because I do not think that, though it's not explicitly said, I it did not seem like Vincent's parents were necessarily well off um but i don't know how did you guys interpret the economy of of gattaca yeah two things so like the first is um presumably like if it's an economy that's like rich enough to be sending all these rockets up into space they could also have like disability basic income or like a basic income for people who like who are unenhanced and like lack access to employment and they could probably like invent some robots that would like clean the office buildings for them instead of having like this kind of permanent underclass is like doing the office work. And so mm-hmm. this is like yet another like 
case about like automation and then, you know, if someone gets injured and they break their back and they can't work, like they could get a basic income. They wouldn't have to like sell their genetic material. So um, <laughs> I am like wondering and like what, like how does the economy work such that society is not rich enough to include any kind of like support system, but they are rich enough to like send a bunch of rockets into space. It doesn't make any sense. Alan Buchanan's like a philosopher that writes about like what would happen if we had like post humans that were like really enhanced and like way genetically advantaged relative to unenhanced people. And he says mm-hmm. like, in order for institutions to be justifiable, um, people who are really disadvantaged by a system that like seeds a lot of socioeconomic power and political power to the enhanced, then the enhanced people would have a moral obligation to kind of like cut it, cut everybody else in on the benefits of the enhanced society, like the, the society that was run by enhanced people. Um, and so I don't know if I like think that that's the reason, but I do think that it's kind of just like a kind of unstable system to have this extremely wealthy society that like nevertheless doesn't like kind of provide any sort of compensation or assistance or anything to unenhanced people, but actually like engages in active discrimination of them. Um, And then the second thought about the economy is just like, it does seem like, you know, it's broadly egalitarian in terms of access, but even if you were worried about like inegalitarian access to enhancements, that's true of any kind of healthcare innovation. Like, you know, in the beginning, drugs are really expensive and then they like go generic or the technology gets cheaper, the price goes down and then everybody can share in the benefits. So sometimes people like object to enhancement because they worry it'll heighten economic inequality. Um, mm-hmm. But you, know, you could subsidize it or, or more generally just wait, like wait until the technology gets cheaper and then everybody can share in it. That's not a reason to block emerging technologies early on. Like computers, like if there was a requirement that computers were affordable to all families back in like 1989, <laughs> like we would never have computers. <laughs> but now like you can get a computer for like $150 and it's like, you know, so. And I think there's also a question of what kind of comparison is the morally important one. So the movie focuses on the comparison between Vincent and people like uh, Eugene and his brother. But you might think that the relevant comparison is not Eugene versus Vincent, but say Vincent versus what Vincent would be like or what his life would be like in a world without enhancement. So you might say like today, uh, I'm a lot worse off than Jeff Bezos, uh, but I'm a lot better off for being in a world (laughs) with all of these positive externalities uh, so that, you know, uh, food and shelter and transportation and metal, medical technology is really abundant. So it's better to be uh, middle class or even relatively poor in 2020 than in 1920, uh, in part because of things like technological advancements. And so I think it's plausible that, like, if you had a, maybe a more accurate depiction of what an enhanced world would be like, that Vincent, as he is, would be better off in the enhanced world than in the unenhanced world. So, so like similar to these points where you say like, look, Gattaca is launching 12 rockets a day. Surely they're going to have like cheap tickets for space tourism or something like that. Yeah, like, go to the moon. Right. Really, <laughs> the stars, like it'll cost them, you know, 15 bucks to go to Mars or something like that. And you say, that's not as good as being a commander at Gattaca or whatever his title is going to be, but it's better than he would be. Uh, if he wasn't in this world of, uh, you know, uh, technological advancement and genetic enhancement and things like that. Because it, it's weird, like, he can't even get LASIK. Tony Shalhoub is like, no, we can't give you this surgery because it'll give you scars or something like that. You say, I right. think in that world, he would probably have far more 
opportunity as a result of living in a society with all of these super smart people who are generating all these positive externalities. That's another thing. It seems like the smart people or the enhanced people, they should be generating more positive externalities because like if you were doing enhancement and some of the enhancements they mentioned, like tendencies to like violent aggression, I think was one of them or something like, yeah. Um, are moral enhancements. like So like, why wouldn't you enhance people to make them more ethical so you could give people like enhanced cooperative abilities, enhanced empathy, enhanced generosity? But it seems like all of the people who are enhanced are like total assholes to other people. <laughs> and it's just like, why would you, <laughs> like, why would you think that enhancing people would make them morally, like still, still be really morally problematic and like an egalitarian when, you know, why not enhance for more cooperation and empathy? Well, why wouldn't they enhance then to make everyone moral saints? Because then right. you wouldn't have any issues. I mean, <laughs> there is a question about whether or not it's desirable to have moral saints or if there's like other good stuff that you might want to have, like, I don't know, interior designing or architecture or something. But, right. um, <laughs> but like, yeah, you could make them, if not moral saints, like morally better. But it seems like the enhanced people are like really morally bad. Like they're they look upon the unenhanced with contempt, um, which does not seem like it would be compatible with having enhanced empathy or cooperation or anything like that. Um, yeah, we could bump up empathy by like at least 20% in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> at least, at least. <laughs> Everything's negotiable except for the fact that like people are going to be self-interested and mean to people. And then it's like, that's the thing that like we can't, we can't find a way around that in some way. But we know the genetic basis for literally everything else, which is just like... <laughs> Well, and, and Jess, I know this is something that, that you talk about, this, the, the reversal test, but, but on the point of the positive externalities, you could say, well, you know, ask, ask uh, ourselves if we would prefer to live in a world in which, say, uh, you know, every Nobel Prize winner was disenhanced. I don't know if that's the word. Uh, mm -hmm. Would we be better or worse off for living in that world? It seems like we would be worse off living in that world because we say, look, there are all these positive externalities that come about from these really exceptional people. Then if you think that's the case, you might ask, well, okay, then why not expect to be bumped up ourselves by having even more of these exceptional people or making the exceptional people even more acceptable? So if we're not willing to disenhance because we yeah. think that would be bad for us, then we might ask, well, okay, let's be more, you know, why aren't we more open to further enhancements? It, it would be, it would be a, a semi-miraculous coincidence if we landed on the exact right amount of ability that, that was the status quo. Right. Right. Yeah. The reversal test is nice because it's like, how would you argue that the status quo is optimal? And like, in some ways, our society is already enhanced because life expectancy has increased so much. And so like, say that we had a, a genetic enhancement that would increase life expectancy to 130. People are like, oh, no, that would be so terrible because it's like that movie in time. It's like, oh, we need to like keep the population down somehow because we don't we don't want to mm -hmm. have too many people hanging around or something. Um, <laughs> OK, but like if that's a reason then like, why wouldn't we just like stop pursuing things that would extend life now? Or like, why wouldn't we actually just stop providing things that extend life after 60 or 70 years old? Um, and people are like, oh, no, that would be like really monstrous. But like the same reasons that you wouldn't want to like scale back life expectancy, because that seems terrible, would also be reasons to increase it. Um, and then that's true for just all of the stuff. Like why think that you know, in 1997, we reached the optimal level of enhancement. <laughs> that was perfect. But anything beyond that is just going to end in disaster. Like, it's our own status quo bias. Just like even how you perceive the status quo, it's like, 
it there is not really like one status quo. Like I was at a conference once and there were like I was in a breakout group and there were like three different groups of people. And like one group was from like a disability rights community. And they were talking about CRISPR and they were saying mm-hmm. like, we should be like extremely reluctant to allow any more like human trials or any kind of experimentation with humans in CRISPR uh, because it's going to lead to this kind of like worry about the specter of eugenics. And then there were like some physicians and physicians were like, well, we should look into it, but we shouldn't be doing it yet. We should have lots of guardrails on it. We should kind of proceed within the medical establishment through hospitals and IRB trials with lots of safeguards. And then there were some like tech people who were like, every day that we wait on CRISPR is a day that like, we're going to lose lives that could have been saved with like the innovations that CRISPR will bring. Um, And all three of those groups were just like trying to maintain the status quo that they saw. So like the disability rights people were just trying to like maintain the status quo distribution of ability and Mm -hmm. resources for people of different abilities. And the doctors were trying to maintain what they saw as like the status quo distribution of medical treatments and like kind of go through that ordinary system. And then like the tech people were trying to maintain their like status quo pace of innovation, which was like Uber and then like Facebook comes and, you know, like accelerating innovation. But that was like all the status quo. But it was just like, depending on where you were sitting, that influenced how you saw things. And like in 1997... And even today, like people see the status quo and they only look at like the position, the way that things look. But we don't see that like part of our status quo is that things are changing all the time. That's also the status quo. Like the speed of innovation is also the status quo. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you make an important point about the, the status quo already being enhanced above and beyond the natural. So if we think of, of an enhancement as just something that takes us beyond, you know, I don't know, the evolved nature of homo sapiens or something like that. I mean, that, that ship has sailed for that you know, for a long time. So like I, I use this example with my students. It's like, uh, suppose, I don't know when fluoride was invented or maybe not, you know, whenever it was introduced into toothpaste, like, would you, like, would you object to brushing your teeth with fluoride because it gives you an enhanced resistance to cavities? It's like, uh, that doesn't strike me as like a very compelling objection to fluoride use. And now like, every, and like, in fact, why today, do you want to play God, Brian? <laughs> Dentists are playing God with our children's teeth. I've been saying it for a long time. Um, and, and, and like, it would be weird if you said that. Um, but we say like, look, because we take it as normal now that, that you can enhance your teeth or you vaccinate and this enhances um, your health beyond what's natural. And so I think it's very, very hard to, to draw a principled line between what counts as an enhancement and, and what's not. I mean, you know, binoculars are an enhancement in a certain sense. And so, yeah, I think there's a tendency to think like, oh, no, like what we have now is perfectly natural and it's it's normal. They're like, no, not not really. Like you go back a thousand years and it looks very, very, it would look very, very weird to them. This movie does have some like strong, like anti-vax, anti-GMO energy, right? Oh, oh, for sure. (laughs) I hadn't seen it that way. (laughs) Well, so this is, so this is, you know, interesting is because Vincent is referred to as like a god child. Which seems to suggest that what the the enhanced people are doing is like is playing God in an objectionable way. And now for the time in the show where we all get to share the other pieces of media that we have been enjoying during this period at home. This is locked in. So Natalie, Jess, Chris, what else have you been enjoying? Um so what have I been reading lately? I've been reading, I read Zena Hitz's book, Lost in Thoughts, um, which is kind of like a pop philosophy type book. Um, that was like pretty fun. I liked that. It has like lots of 
good stories. And I've been listening to um, uh, Phoebe Bridgers has a new album out. Yeah, ah. very good. It's very good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the Mountain yeah. Goats have a new album that recently came out uh, that he just kind of like recorded in his house. And I think that that album is also really excellent. Um, like very, it's like a concept album based off of uh, like a French historian's account of like the last day of the, the last like kind of days of the pagans or like the last groups of pagans that were like kind of swept up with Christianity, but it's like an album around that. It's really good. So the Mountain Goats new album is good. And um, Frank Turner, who I like, um, maybe I bet some of your listeners will like Frank Turner also, but uh, he's been doing like these little like live things. And he did one that was like all covers. And I thought that was really good. So if you follow Frank Turner on Twitter, he'll like link to like these little live YouTube shows that he's been putting on. And those have been pretty charming. Um, And that's all. I've been reading some poetry that I like, which is like Tony Hogland. He recently died. He's a really good poet. And I just read what narcissism means to me, which is like a really good book of his poetry um huh. so i'd recommend that too but cool. yeah, that's what i've been up to lately so i don't really enjoy reading all that much so i don't know if i have any thoughts <laughs> uh so i do like to watch tv so i could maybe give some tv Perfect. recommendations so here's one i have to preface this by saying so my wife recommended this to me and her, her pet peeve is when she makes a recommendation and I resist the recommendation thinking that I won't like it. And eventually I <laughs> relent and I love it. Uh, and, and this is one of those cases. So she kept pushing the show on me, telling me I would love it. And finally I gave in and I do love it. Uh, it's called Dave and it's on Hulu. Oh my I, gosh. I think it's, you know the show? It's incredible. Yes. It's like, it's, it's, here's how I describe it. It's like curb your enthusiasm if Larry David were a rapper in his 20s. It's, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, Oh, little uh, Dicky, he made the show. Dickie, I've seen it. Exactly, it's it's so good. It yeah. So I definitely recommend that. And that's maybe like wait, little Dicky's in the show. show. Yeah, so little Dicky's the main character. <laughs> oh my gosh, Richmond, and he's the executive producer, and he also graduated from the University of Richmond. <laughs> yeah, University of Richmond. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably the like of the famous Richmond grad, little Dicky, right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You should be proud. He's great. He, I, and I can't, I don't know. I can't tell if he, uh, so, so, you know, it's hard to tell exactly how much of the show reflects reality. Cause in the show, he seems very confident that he is in fact a talented rapper. And my wife claims that in reality, he also thinks he's a talented, talented rapper. Like it's not tongue in cheek. I don't, I don't know, Natalie, if you've seen the show, what do you think? Do you think he really right. believes he's a good rapper? I mean, maybe he is. I don't know. So like little Dickie's whole vibe is this like that he he's a good rapper but doesn't fit in with like the stereotypical rapper like th- this the stereotype of 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 good rappers um and he like I believe because he's an executive producer on the show too I believe the at least the first season is supposed to reflect like what actually happened in his life like the woman that's his girlfriend in the few, first few episodes is his actual was his actual girlfriend or slash still <laughs> is they may have gotten back oh, together okay. i don't know um but these were real instances and in, like scenarios that happened in his life because i went down this rabbit hole of researching how accurate the show was um, <laughs> so, um but yeah no i i also thought the show was really good and it, it i mean it's lighthearted in a sense but also like kind of obnoxious um but That's yeah i, I enjoyed it <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah, that's no, it's definitely yeah, it, that that's exactly right, and and I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, and I don't another show. This is like old, um, well, kind of old, and I and I I mentioned it because it's maybe like it's kind of under the radar, and it's not usually my t- so like I don't really like uh, absurdist humor. I don't like Monty Python. I don't I don't know. Like this is sacrilege to some people, but I I don't think it's funny. Like I don't I don't know. Like, right. I never know why the night said <laughs> me was funny. Um, like I don't know if I've even chortled it. Uh, Monty Python. The show that I love that's like absurdist humor is uh, the Eric Andre show, which I think is also rerunning. Yeah. Uh, that's so yeah. funny. It's it's hilarious. So I recommend that. Um, I don't know. My, my musical fun. tastes are so juvenile. I don't know if it's even worth giving recommendations. It's yeah, always worth it. I don't normally it's give music recommendations. It. It's always <laughs> worth it. This is well, your ch- think- this is your chance. Convince our audience. <laughs> well, I, okay. So I... I um, I'm like trapped in uh, like my high school years in terms of my musical taste. Like I really love, I really love heavy metal. I've never stopped. Uh, I've really been getting into the whole, uh, what's the word discography, I think is the term of uh, this, this metalcore band, Every Time I Die and they're old favorites. So if you like metal, you probably already know who they are, but I, I've rediscovered mm-hmm. them after a couple of years off and, and they're just incredible. So if you, if you haven't given them a listen and you like metal. Uh, I have, a, I highly recommend them. Very cool. Well, on, on my end, on the reading front, I've uh, discovered that the Arlington Public Library can uh, send you free eBooks um, to your iPad and or Kindle. I have an iPad, so I've been getting some good books. Um, in terms of fiction, I'm reading Life and Other Inconveniences right now by Krista Higgins. Um, about like halfway through, um, and it seems to be a little bit of a murder mystery novel slash um, the main character's child was abducted and or kidnapped and or already dead, but we're in like a setting like 20 years later right now, and she's still struggling over the loss of her child um, on the... TV and movie front. Um, I just watched Eurovision, um, and it's the new Netflix wait, movie. Wait, you, wait, oh, oh! I was gonna say you watched all of Eurovision, like <laughs> no, the no, real no, no, thing. No, no, no so no. you watched the the Fire Saga yes, movie yes, with Will Ferrell, the, the okay, new Netflix movie with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. Uh, it was very Will Ferrell. If that's something you like, it really reminded me of Blades of Glory. Um, but okay, it was. Good. Again, it was funny. It was lighthearted. Um, and it was one of those films that you watched and you're like, why did I enjoy that? But it like also gave me good belly laughs. So um, I would recommend that if you want something a little bit more lighthearted. And then I've also, I'm still sticking to um, rewatching a lot of Survivor just because I find that entertaining. And I've said that multiple times now. But anyway, I'm still going because there's 40 seasons. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Landry? Uh, I have a few recommendations. Uh, I recently found uh, an essay that I had read several years ago when I was towards the end of graduate school that I just, uh, I was reading, I was looking at longform.org, which is a, they collect long form journalism and writing online and sort of publish best of lists. But one that I really, really enjoyed uh, that I rediscovered recently is called, it's a, an essay called 52 Blue by Leslie Jameson, who wrote uh, The Empathy Exams, if you've read that. Um, uh, and it's, um, it's about the people that are fascinated with and sort of enamored by the the whale that goes by the name 52 Blue. It's a whale that sings its whale song at 52 hertz, which is like 
totally different than any other whale of its species and it it, it has a hard time finding other whales and sort of uh, swims through the ocean on its own and, and is sort of like a lonely animal compared to the others that the sort of uh, uh, swim in, in packs together. And it's, but it's more about the people that are kind of enamored with this whale and use it as a metaphor for like loneliness or depression or something. It, it, it's just really, really great and, and very well written. It's, it's fascinating. It's called 52 blue. Um, I also would recommend uh, there are two TV shows that I would really, really like to recommend. One is called Review, and it ended a few years ago. It stars Andy Daly, who you would probably recognize because he's been in everything. Um, but uh, this is his one like starring role. He's been on Comedy Bang Bang and has is a, a, a improv comedian, has a bunch of characters. But he plays a character that is a reviewer, but instead of reviewing books or movies or TV shows, he reviews life experiences. Um, and, and in doing so, he, he takes it so seriously that he like completely ruins everything else in his life because he's not allowed to tell anyone what he's reviewing. So he get he gets assigned to review getting a divorce for instance, in the second episode. <laughs> and to do it with the most scientific rigor, he doesn't tell his wife that he's doing it for a review. So he just divorces his wife and then two weeks later is miserable and gives it one star and it's not like everything goes back to normal at the end the rest of the series is him dealing with the fallout of having divorced his wife uh for the review of the show so these like terrible things that he's forced to review over the course of the show slowly accumulate and like ruin his life but he takes it so seriously as his job that he he really loves it um so it's very dark but it's like a fun mockumentary style show. There's only like three seasons and they were all on Comedy Central, but it was not promoted at all. Um, they did not do a good job of advertising it. But it is very funny if you're into kind of dark, dry humor. I was going to say, I second that recommendation. I, I saw that show a couple of years. It's, it's hilarious. It's, it's a shame it never got more attention. It's so great. I really, really recommend it to people. And and it's a very easy watch. It's like 23 minutes an episode, and there's like 20 or 20 something of them. So very easy to do and very, very funny. And a lot of famous comedians are in it. Um, another show that uh, you reminded me of, Chris, uh, is has Eric Andre in it. Um, is called Man Seeking Woman. Uh, it was on FXX, uh, and it is basically, it's about a man who is sort of down and out and has been broken up with by his girlfriend and his sort of various different, uh, like, dating escapades and trying to meet woman and, and live his life as sort of a late 20s man. Um, but it takes a very, like, it takes an absurdist twist, so every episode has a sort of like trope that it plays up and really pushes it absolutely like to the limit. So for instance, in one episode, he's nervous about sending a, a text to a, a girl that he is trying to court. Um, and he and his friend are debating whether he should send a follow-up text to be like, hey, did you get my message? And it starts as a normal sort of conflict between them and slowly escalates into they're in like a war room uh, of like a military uh, sort of scenario. And they're all standing <laughs> around a table with a, a map and like making decisions in military uniforms saying like, he shouldn't send a second text and like <laughs> sort of discussing it like this. But every episode is a different kind of like 
uh, like media trope that they're playing on and sort of its own absurd thing. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, and then two albums have recently come out. Uh, Heim released The Women in Music Part 3, uh, I think just last week. It's phenomenal. It's bright. It's summery. It will remind you of summer when you weren't locked indoors all the time. Uh, and <laughs> Notes on a Conditional Form, which is by the 1975 uh, that came out earlier oh, this year. Um, it's not, yeah. I would say, as good as their last album, A Brief Inquiry into Online Relationships, but I do enjoy it and think it's good, so it's worth a listen. If you're like me, you might not be able to see how everyone could mix up Ethan Hawke and Jude Law when one is clearly more handsome than the other. Or you didn't know that Andrew Nichol is also responsible for motion picture masterpieces like The Truman Show, The Terminal, and Stephanie Meyer's The Host. Whatever you think of Gattaca, though, make sure to keep the conversation going with us on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.